Well, as we come to this uh, tremendous text and as we continue through the holiday, there seems to be a cyclical pattern that occurs and, and it occurs at Thanksgiving and it occurs again at Christmas and sometimes it occurs at the New Year. And it starts with preparing for gatherings in our homes for each of these events. And first there is the initial planning and preparation. The list of foods have to be made. The shopping has to be done. All all the general planning for the meal and table decor and all of these things. Then there's the less savory work, the vacuuming. I know some people, they say they like vacuuming. I'm not one of those people, but I do try. And then the dusting. Now, if you like dusting, we definitely are not on the same page. Of course, I'm rarely on that page as Karen most always does this chore. I'm not sure if it's because I do such a bad job or that there may have at one remote, uh, rarely repeated time been some gagoosmossing going on from me. Um, I have repented of that and if you don't know what that is, you can listen to last week's message. And then even worse, there's the really big jobs. There's cleaning the bathrooms, and then there's window washing, and all of the other things that should have been done all summer and didn't. But then the gathering begins. Friends and family arrive, and the stress of preparation begins to fade away, and the joy and the laughter of the gathering makes it such that you can't even remember the difficulties at all. Well, that same concept exists in a spiritual perspective in our text today, and it's where our title comes from this morning. And I've titled our message, Your Necessary Spiritual Circle. Your Necessary Spiritual Circle. Let's take a look at our text together from the book of Jude. I'm going to read beginning at verse 20. Please follow along in your translations. Jude, verse 20. But you, beloved... Building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Your necessary spiritual circle. And our theme for this morning is three required aspects of faith for every Christian's growth. In each of our points today, there are individual required elements that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you must be practicing in order to grow. And that if you are not, then by definition, you are not growing. And not only that, you are not obedient to God's word. Jude has just come out of this daunting damnation of the apostates who have slithered their way into the church. He's given the details of these horrific wolves who are in the church. And this is a stunning consideration. And it is incumbent on every person in the church to realize this fact and to be on guard. This is so powerfully stated that the verb to keep or to guard, is stated four different times in this short epistle. Jude elaborates on all their ungodly and unsavory characteristics. And then he next identifies them by their actions, grumblers and fault finders. Those whose sole aim is to pursue their own lustful passions, boastful and proud, and duplicitously deceiving their victims in the church pronouncing flattering words only to rob those whom their words have made unaware. Then Jude returns to pronounce his final exhortation to this threatened church in verses 20 to 25. And this is your necessary spiritual circle. Three required aspects of your faith for every Christian's growth. And our First required aspect is our first point, which I have labeled pursue righteousness. 
pursue righteousness. Our verse begins with the repeated phrase, but you. This is parallel with the same phrase beginning in verse 17. And next week, we'll hear much more about this. And these two sections, 17 and 18, uh, and, and, 19, and 20 and 21, are parallel. And they start with this same phrase, showing this parallel concept. Verses 17 and 18 are the final set of instructions with respect to the apostates. And now, verses 20 and 21 are the final set of instructions to the church. We know that he's addressing the church because of his familiar theme of tenderness, beloved. The word he used to describe them in verse 1 as those, as those to whom God has placed his covenant love and affection. The tender word he uses to, to describe them in verse 3 and again in verse 17 and now in verse 20. And the way in which every Christian must pursue righteousness is that you are building yourselves up on your most holy faith. The verb building up expresses exactly what we'd expect. It's the process where something is constructed. When a building is built, there is a plan that is laid out for what the building is to look like. And then the contractor takes the plan and assembles all the necessary pieces to create a structure that looks just like what the plan had illustrated. Whether it be a storage shed, or a barn, or a house, or a skyscraper, it's all the same process. And so it must be in every Christian's life. And notice, brothers and sisters, this building process is reflexive. You must be doing the building for yourself. No one else can do it. Hebert notes that this instruction is clearly indicating that this building is not here an evangelistic growth of the church, but is the required inner maturity of its members. He goes on. While divine bestowal of life imparts the ability and desire to grow, it is yet the responsibility of each believer to work out their own salvation. End quote. Beloved, you must recognize that it is clearly your responsibility to act as your own moral and responsible agent for this growth. The blueprint of this building is to given to us next in verse 20 as that which is on your most holy faith. Faith is the grace gift of God which brings salvation apart from any work of man. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 clearly states this. And now having received f- such faith, it must be built upon. This is the way or the mechanism by which you are to build yourself up. You do so by means of your most holy faith. This phrase, most holy faith, is very rare in the New Testament Greek. It's an emphatic modifier. Holy is modifying faith. So it isn't just any faith or any religious belief. It is that which is completely set apart or holy. And that's what the the word holy means. Something to be set apart or to be other than the rest that is around it. And it is not just holy faith, but it is the most holy faith. That is the greatest expression of separateness or otherness or difference from the world around us than possibly can be stated in the Greek language. It's a superlative expression of highest order. There are many other beliefs. There are many other faiths. But none are like the belief of the Christian. It's completely different. And why is this? Well, it is because the Christian faith centers around the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel with respect to our Lord. It is Jesus' life. It is his death. It is his burial, ascension, his resurrection and ascension. This is how he perfectly brings forth the truth of Scripture. Born of a virgin and so many aspects of his perfect birth. A sinless life wherein he prepared himself to be the substitutionary sacrifice for us. His death on the cross by which he endured the wrath of God and propitiated for all of us the sin which embodies all that we continue to do. 
It is that which brings atonement and which brings salvation to us, by which his righteousness is transferred to us. And we are shown in his resurrection that God received his perfect work and he is now at the right hand of God the Father. And so this gospel particularly relates to you and I. It must be that which is perfectly parallel with Christ's life. Sometimes parallel in an opposite way. Contrasting parallelism as we see in the Psalms. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life. Our lives are full of sin, completely contrary. We will die as a result of that sin. But he has died so that we can have life if we receive his gift. And as we read from Romans 6, as he was raised, so in our dying to sin with him, we too shall be raised like him. And that requires the fact, beloved, that we receive the truth of the gospel message. That we live differently than the world around us. That we understand that there are only two options, to receive this choice and to live in light of his word and obedience to it, or to reject that truth and to spend eternity separate from him in punishment and eternal exile. This is exactly what Paul is proclaiming in this building up in Ephesians 2.20 where he says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Our faith is that which is built on what others have shown, on the truth of the scripture, on the truth of the gospels, the truth of the epistles. These are the things that the apostles brought forth, that the prophets had before them told concerning the coming of Messiah that we now build our lives upon. This is the truth. This is the hope. This is where we must be founded. The conveyance of the body of this most holy faith comes to us in doctrine. That which is conveyed in scripture, just as we read in Acts 20.32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. It's God's word that brings that grace to us. It helps us see. We sing these great hymns of the faith because they reveal to us the truth of who God and Christ is. And they help us to see doctrine in a unique and fresh way. And it is in receiving that doctrine that we are built up to understand our inheritance, to understand this process of sanctification which we're going through. And then Jude gives us three additional ways in which we're to build ourselves up in the next verses. And the first is praying in the Holy Spirit. The term for prayer here is an all-encompassing term, and it includes each of the many forms of prayer, whether we think of, of praise, whether we think of thanksgiving, whether we think of confession, whether we think of intercession, whether we think of supplication. All of these are embraced in this term. As Dr. MacArthur well notes, this is not some special ecstatic prayer. This is not something that you have to have a special gift to do. This is not something that is outside of the, the ability of every believer, even if they are a brand new Christian. Rather, it is, as another commentator notes, prayer that is immersed in the Holy Spirit and shut off from the world's evil. Can you relate to what that kind of prayer looks like? How easy the evil of the world, the things in our lives come in and they haunt our prayer. And as we're trying to focus and to plead and to have communion with our God and Father and with Jesus Christ our Lord through His Spirit, the world just comes crashing in on that prayer. And this particular prayer is that which is devoid of that. That in which we are in perfect communion and harmony with our Father. This is prayer that is in line with Romans 8.26 where Paul writes, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Our prayer is never going to be perfect. 
But it is that which, as believers in Christ, the Spirit moves through that prayer and that He brings that prayer before God the Father and in those weaknesses and in those things that come in between which we would seek to have completely devoid of, the Spirit moves those because He seeks to bring our hearts into alignment with the will of God and does so as we are faithful in our prayer. In verse 21, our description continues, keep yourselves in the love of God. This is the main command in these two verses, and it is again our verb to keep, previously mentioned and here occurring for the fourth time in this short letter. This is how the believer protects themselves from the horrors of apostasy that have been revealed in the previous verses. The reflexive element of keep yourselves is just like we saw back in verse 20. It is your responsibility to do this. One commentator notes, it is your responsibility to be obedient and faithful to live out your salvation just as Paul proclaims in Philippians 2.12. And Paul writes in Philippians 2 and 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Our lives require obedience. They require our work. They require our effort that the salvation which has been given to us is then acted upon. Because then it is God in us working out that sanctification. Faith is always connected with obedience. It isn't that which produces faith, for that would be works salvation or works righteousness. And no one can earn or merit heaven. None of us are good enough. Romans 3.10 says, None of us are righteous, not even one. So there is none that is good. And if there was someone that could be good enough, we could do enough good things, or if we could earn our way to heaven, as many of the so-called faiths would proclaim, then Christ would not have had to die. And God would not have sent his son to waste that beautiful, precious life if there were any other way. And there is no other way. But this is the faith that is evidenced through works, as James 2 speaks about, which, by the way, Our men's and our ladies' Bible studies are firmly in the middle of, and this week we'll be discussing the aspects of faith and work. The final facet is at the end of verse 21, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So this process of keeping yourselves in the love of God by building yourself up, by praying, is now supplemented by waiting. But notice... It is waiting anxiously. It is a confident expectation. This is the Christian's hope. And it's what it's all about. You know, this time of year, if you have children at home, or if you remember when you did have, that that tree would go up. And then you might wrap a present or two, and you'd start putting them under the tree. And all the little ones in the house would be like, oh, whose name's on that one? Is that for me? Do I get to open that gift? That, beloved, is waiting anxiously, excited about which, that which is coming, the delight and hope of that which is presented and which awaits our final reception. This ultimate expression of the Lord's mercy is his granting of the undeserved gift of eternal life. What more incredible act of mercy exists that rather than eternal damnation for which we in our sin and our guilt deserve, that God grants instead eternal life with him. It's amazing. Dr. MacArthur well describes this aspect as an eager anticipation of Christ's second coming to provide eternal life in its ultimate resurrection form which is the supreme expression of God's mercy on one to whom Christ's righteousness has undeservedly been imputed, end quote. What a gift we have 
That God has saved us. That God has called us. That God is working in us. And that God will glorify us. And that one day we will have eternal life from him. Apart from the difficulty of sin. Apart from the failings of our physical flesh. Apart from the difficulties of our mind and thoughts and emotion. Apart from all of the financial and spiritual ills of this world. We will be with him. And we will see him as he is. And this is amazing for us to recognize. One way to consider what is involved for you to pursue righteousness is to think about the opposite. As an example, I know this won't apply to any of you, so I can say it in all good conscience. Um, Let's just say it's Saturday afternoon, and you've been talking all week about finally putting up a few Christmas lights. But then you see the Boise State football game is on TV. And you think, well, maybe I can do it later. Or maybe someone else will do it. Maybe my wife or my kids or somebody. That's just ridiculous, isn't it? It's like saying, as we hear so often, oh, I'm sending good thoughts. Or I'm sending good vibes into the atmosphere. These are ridiculous concepts. Beloved, this will not happen if you do not do it. No, we have to get out of our spiritual lazy boys and pursue righteousness by actively engaging our faith in these four disciplines, by building ourselves up on our most holy faith, growing, studying, digesting, loving the word of God, by praying in the Holy Spirit, be constantly pleading before our Father through the power of his spirit, and by keeping ourselves in the love of God. By recognizing that it is our effort by which we keep ourselves in God's perfect harmony and grace. Through his strength and through his work. And that we are waiting anxiously for the mercy that comes in eternal life in Christ Jesus. That takes us to our second point and our next verses. And I've titled this next point, Provide Resuscitation. Provide Resuscitation. Look at verses 22 and 23 of Jude with me. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Resuscitation means bringing back to life that which is dead. And this is just what these verses are referencing. Three separate groups are to be the recipients of our resuscitation efforts in these two verses. The first thing we are to do is to have mercy in verse 21. This imperative verb indicates that this is a command. It is not an optional action, but it is one that is required of every believer. Mercy is compassion and sympathy it is pity generated by seeing the afflictions and suffering of another person it is the reverse of grace grace is receiving what is undeserved or often called unmerited favor mercy is not receiving what is deserved Christ has mercy on us by not giving the punishment deserved for our sin. But, in like fashion, instead of offering that, he gives us his righteousness in exchange for that sin, which is grace. Those to whom this mercy is to be shown are those that are doubting. Who are the doubters? Hebert identifies these as the ones who are victims of apostasy. These are the ones who are doubting the truth of God. And the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. These are the ones who are doubting the work of the church. These are the ones who are doubting the authority of the elder. And the truth of God's word. That the elders are God's given representatives. And authoritative actors on his behalf in the church. To whom he will hold responsible. They've not come to a settled knowledge of Jesus Christ. So as to be saved. But have waffled and sat on the fence. Should they be doubting? No, no one should doubt who God is and what he's done because he has made the truth of himself evident in every man. Romans 1.18 tells us this. The word doubting is translated in verse 9 of Jude as disputing. 
And a strong argument could be made hermeneutically to use the same term here. To have mercy on some who are disputing. The meaning of our assignment is unchanged, but a greater emphasis is placed upon their contrary perspective and thus increases our responsibility in the command to show mercy. It is not what they deserve, but it's what we must extend. That is to, be, that is to recognize the desperate condition of their plight and to extend care to them. It's not accidental that this command immediately follows the statement in verse 21 showing the immeasurable mercy of receiving eternal life in Christ Jesus. Oh, I don't want to show mercy. Well, what have you been given? The most glorious mercy of all time in eternal life in Christ. Something exactly the opposite of what we're deserving in our sin. And this letter has emphasized mercy from the beginning. Back in verse 2 in Jude's greeting, he greets this group in this church with mercy, peace, and love. Interestingly, every Pauline epistle, as eternally attested, every Petrine epistle, Second John and Revelation, all use grace and peace. But Jude has done something very specific here by including mercy. By including that special gift of not receiving what we deserve. And the statement is directly focused on the application in these two verses. And so we are commanded to show these doubters mercy. This is the first aspect of providing resuscitation. The next resuscitation effort is to save others snatching them out of the fire. Here we have our second group, and they are much worse than the doubters. These must be saved, showing that their doom is imminent. The word saved is referencing a work of salvation that can be done ultimately by God alone. And yet it is applied to us. And not just applied to us, but stated as an imperative command that we must obey. The action of snatching them out of the picture, out of the the scene is is a picture of a sudden and even a violent action of snatching. We might picture the same situation with a father jerking his son out of the way of certain peril as he steps in front of an oncoming bus. A violent pulling him out of that way. This is the action that's portrayed for us in these verses. And the condition of this second group is desperate indeed. These are the ones that are already exposed to the fire. Not yet in it, such that they can still be saved. We're not told what the fire is specifically, but as one commentator notes, it is a common proverbial statement from Scripture, as could be associated with Zechariah 3.2. It could be associated with Lot and his being snatched out of Sodom before the fire and brimstone destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, or even the lake of fire. Eternal separation from God in the judgment and fire of hell is clearly what's being pictured here. The third group at the end of verse 23 are the most severe. These two are to be shown mercy. The repeated imperative verb command from verse 22, again, they are not to receive what they deserve, Particularly, they are to be shown compassion rather than the tendency for these who are the most hard-hearted and difficult and the tendency which might be to scorn or to gloat over their decisions and that they have rejected the truth and thus they are deserving of punishment. We might consider uh, politicians from uh, a long state to our west with a high population near the coast that will remain unnamed and Some politicians from that state which we as conservative individuals may not love and which will remain unnamed. And yet this is exactly the ones who rather than saying, oh, all the decisions you've done, all the things you've torn apart, all the bad laws and everything else, you should be judged. No. No, we are commanded for these who might be the most difficult to show mercy. To show love, to show compassion and pity if they would but come 
to the saving knowledge of Christ. And thus when we pay, pray for our president, when we pray for these elected officials, we plead with earnestness that God would bring them new life. And with that, we're again drawn to verse 20. And the mercy which each believer is shown as opposed to the punishment which which we all deserve. However, this mercy is to be exercised with fear. The reason for the fear is what occurs in the remainder of the verse. Namely, because of their garments polluted by the flesh which are to be hated. Very interesting construction and often misunderstood. The word garment is something that is often translated as tunic, and it is the seamless inner garment that is worn against the skin in the ancient world. The pollution or the staining is conveyed to us via a perfect verb, which is showing us that this is a past tense action that is ongoing, and thus it is an irremovable stain that is upon this garment. The defiled garments here are a picture of sin's effect upon the very body and soul of the individual. The phrases uses are of some of the most graphic conceivable in the scriptures. And we see similar phrases in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 64, 6, regarding our righteous deeds as filthy rags. And were we to wear such garments, were they to be adjacent to our flesh, that rottenness would begin to penetrate and permeate our flesh. And this is the picture that's being conveyed for us here. James 3, 6 is the only other place in Scripture that this word occurs, and it conveys the same idea, where James says, and the tongue is a Fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets the fire, sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Those words that we speak, and like, where do they come from? How can such things come out of my mouth? One whom Christ has saved and delivered and whom the old things have passed away and behold, all things become new. And yet this comes out. This defilement. The fear to be exercised with mercy is caused by hating of the condition of the polluted garments. This is very important to understand. And it's indicating for us that it is not a malicious or antagonistic attitude towards the individual, but rather an aversion and a loathing of the condition of sin. Thus the hatred is towards the sin and not towards the one sinning. This is such an important recognition because these lines become blurred for us. And we see that one is openly sinning and living contrary to God and mocking all that we believe. And we begin to translate the hate that is supposed to be on the sin to the individual. And that's not right. That's not how we must live. Thus the hatred is again towards the sin and not the one sinning. And such an important recognition. These individuals are enslaved to sin just as every man was before salvation. And thus must be shown mercy. One commentator notes that the polluted garments are a symbol of all the outer habits of life that are affected by the inner foulness of the soul that is in bondage to the flesh and under the control of sin. The reference to the flesh is more than their polluted bodies. But it denotes their corrupt, unregenerate human natures which have become an agent for evil. How easy it is, beloved, in our modern world, our urban city culture, to pass by people on the street without looking, without speaking, without considering the mercy that needs to be extended to them. Such actions would have been more than bad manners, more, considered more than ill upbringing to our grandparents, but would have been plainly rude and worthy of chastisement and punishment. Also, how easy it is for us to sit idly in the quietness of our lives, in the isolation of our electronic devices and worlds, the coziness of our front room recliners, 
And yet if we do such as this, it is impossible to show mercy, either to these doubters or to those so polluted by sin. And with these isolated existences to ignore the desperate hordes of millions perishing in the eternal flames. Those who we'd rather not speak to because of their doubting or denying perspectives. And I just really don't want to be bothered with the argument or dealing with this individual's just bent perspective. Certainly not wanting to be considering any personal responsibility for those whose lifestyles have them pitted on the brink of hell and eternal fire as if we could do anything about it. Hmm. Let alone these desperately defiled individuals whose lives evidence all that we abhor and dare not engage as such may consider that we might associate with one such as these. Oh, my beloved brothers and sisters, how grateful we are that our Savior did not take such an attitude and that He was one who was not ashamed to eat with the tax collector and the sinner. Brothers and sisters, we have been called to perform resuscitation. May we recognize the penalty should we fail these thrice given commands. May you not be one who is in your failing these may be considered among those so described as yourselves, doubting or even worse. And should you be so, I and the leadership of this church stand ready today to help you obey in reaching these lost. Ah, those that come into our property every third Sunday to receive help from our food pantry, that we might go out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might be ready to have mercy on these who are doubting that we might be ready to snatch them out of the fire, that we might with fear have mercy, hating even the garments polluted by the flesh, but moving forward in the faith of Christ to proclaim His truth to them. Pursue righteousness, perform resuscitation, and our third point, produce rejoicing. Jude brings your necessary spiritual circle full around in our third point. He's addressed the life of the believer in our first point in our spiritual growth. He's addressed the life of the unbeliever in our second point in our command to reach out to the lost. And now he addresses the response to God in verses 24 to 25 where he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Our glorious benediction is one of the most beautiful in the scriptures. Jude here returns to his desired theme back from verse 3. Do you remember that? when he wanted to write about our common salvation, well, now he comes back to it. Now back to the joy. Now back to the hope of knowing Christ. And he comes with such power. He brings, as he has throughout this letter, the most powerful and succinct expressions. And here, those that are of the exaltation of our common faith. And it begins with an ode of praise to God, the Father, where it says, now to him. Now to him. The pronoun reference is purposely indistinct. And the reason for this phrase is not so much him, but it is the next element that he is able. Here is the emphasis of the entire doxology. It is more focused on ability rather than identity, as one commentator notes. He is able. Praise the Lord. He is able. Are you able, my friend? I wearily claim that I am often not able. But I exultingly shout, My God is able. With all the dangers, fears, and toils, and duties, and commands, or as Paul explained in 2 Corinthians, afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But the next verse... But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us. 
Oh, my beloved brothers and sisters, are you weary and heavy laden? Come to him, for he will give you rest for your souls, for he is able. Are you ridden with anxiety and worry for all that life has thrown at you, the financial, emotional, physical, and spiritual loads, which are too much for you to carry, too heavy? Cast your burden upon him, for he is able. Are you struggling in your spiritual life and downcast like the father of the possessed son, crying out to the Lord, help my unbelief. As you question him and question your faith, beloved, he is able. The structure of this phrase in Greek reveals one characterized by inherent strength. The power and might residing in him as the omnipotent God. And his power finds expression in harmony with his holy will and in his holy word. Scripture tells us that he is able to save in Hebrews 7.25. That he is able to establish in Romans 16.25. That he is able to assist in Hebrews 2.18. That he is able to subdue in Philippians 3.21. And here in Jude, he is able to protect. He is able to provide. And as Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. He is able. His protection in Jude 24 is amazing. Literally, he is able to protect or keep you from stumbling. The protection is a guarding from present dangers. The word stumbling has a a negative word attached to the front of it in the Greek, and it literally means unstumbling. Or standing sure-footed, picturing a horse. You know, when I rode horseback on an elk hunt through Impassable Canyon, 3,000 feet above the the water of the Middle Fork of the Salmon River, with a steep slope down, I was really happy that the horse that I was on was sure-footed and that he was unstumbling. My heart was still pounding pretty heavy, and yet all I needed to remember was, he is able. All the difficulties Jude has described and all that we encounter in our lives, God is able to keep you from stumbling. This doesn't mean that there won't be difficulties or that there won't be sin that is in our lives because there are and we will. But God will see us through. In Matthew 19, 26, Jesus said, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. This is only the first aspect of God's ability. He is also able to make you stand in the presence of his glory. And if possible, this is perhaps even more magnificent than the previous. Psalm 5.4 proclaims that no evil dwells with God. That means that God cannot and will not live and abide in the presence of sin and evil. But what is the irremovable component of every man? It is sin, is it not? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And a few verses earlier in Romans 3.10, which we just read, there is none righteous, not one. And yet God is going to make us stand in the presence of his glory. How can this be? Well, it's because he transforms us. He makes us new. This body of corruption and death will put on immortality. This body which is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. And God will do it for he is able. Go look at 1 Corinthians 15. This is an astounding progression to eternal life. The Greek word here for presence literally means down in the eye of or in the immediate sight of or presence of. It's not like we're going to be with God, but we'll be up there in the nosebleed seats of the 10 million person stadium. No. Beloved, you'll be under his immediate gaze, literally down in the eye of, in his very presence. Oh, brothers, how inexpressible is this consideration that we will be in the presence of Christ, that we will be under his watchful gaze, that we will be adjacent to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
It's amazing for us to recognize his gift to us. So my thought is, okay, he can make me be there, but I'll be hanging my head and shameful, recognizing so undeserving that I am. And, and so often, I feel that surely this will be so. But no, look, we will be blameless and with great joy. We will stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. The word blameless here is the word that means without spot. It is the picture of the old covenant sacrifice of an animal. It is the exact word used of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 1.19 and also Hebrews 9.14. And Psalm 1.5 says that the wicked will not stand in the judgment, but God will make us stand blameless and with great joy. And the unrestrained exaltation of the end of verse 24 bursts into verse 25. To our only God, there is no other God but one. And that is the reference to the Him back at the beginning of verse 24. The one who is able at the beginning of that verse. And next, He is exalted as Savior. God the Father as our Savior. 1 Timothy 1.1, making the same proclamation. Just as God the Son is Savior. Just as God the Holy Spirit is Savior. This perfectly in keeping with the unity of the Trinity and all of Scripture. And all of this accomplished through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the conduit by which all glory and praise are ascribed to our Father God who is Savior. And so the verse and chapter conclude, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Glory is the radiance or effulgence of his being. See Hebrews 1.3 or the Mount of Transfiguration. Majesty is a word used only three times in the New Testament and it focuses on his power and his supremacy. Dominion is a term reflecting God's sovereign control. There are no random molecules. There are no random elements. God is sovereignly guiding all things according to the character of his will. Power indicates his unrestrained ability to exercise his free will. And the duration of all of this has been before the beginning of time. Genesis 1.1, which we're so familiar, begins... In the beginning. The Hebrew phrase is referring to a past tense time. Something before the beginning. So also with John 1.1. In the beginning. An imperfect verb conveying past ongoing action. Something before the beginning. God has been from eternity past. And not just that. He is also in occurrence now. And God is outside of time, and he exists also in an ever-present now. He exists inside of all time and outside of time at the same time. And if this is hard to grasp, welcome to the club. And it is forever. Into the eternity of eternities, or as Hebrew so beautifully puts it, la olam, la olam, the forever and forever. And so we conclude as does the apostle, amen. Truly, verily, let it be so. The book of Jude and particularly our text are much like that cyclical pattern of holiday entertaining. The pursuit of righteousness is a lot of work. It's a good work and we can enjoy it and we must engage in it and it's absolutely necessary if we're going to succeed and move to the next steps. Likewise, the next part of providing resuscitation is a much more difficult work. It's a work that, frankly, we'd rather not engage in. But if it isn't done, then there's no way for us to enjoy the fullness of the final reward. Just like that particularly difficult part of preparing our homes. And when we engage in the producing of rejoicing, all the work and all the difficulty pass away for the joy that is ours. Only spiritually, it is an eternal reward. And the cyclical pattern that exists here is that we are in 
abundantly blessed to be able to encourage others in their walk with Christ. Just as each holiday comes, we again embrace these opportunities. We can cycle back on all of this by encouraging others to know these truths and to live in them and to grow in them. We must share these things at this season. We must engage in speaking the name of Christ. His is the only name under heaven and on earth by which men can be saved. And here we are at this beautiful holiday season. When someone says, happy holidays, say, no, Merry Christmas. And let me tell you why. Because Jesus has made it merry. And it's merry for you and he wants to know you. Try that and see what happens. Most people just kind of go, whoa. But that's okay too. We need to proclaim this truth. We need to invite people to our church. We need to let them hear the message of our pastor at this holiday season. To hear the beautiful singing of Christmas songs and to hear the gospel message proclaimed so that they might be saved. We need to invite them to Christmas service. You know, so that all of the CE Christians can come to church, uh, Christmas Easter Christians. You know, we live in a rather conservative climate. Most people would say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Great, come to my church. Come listen to our Christmas musical. Come to Christmas morning service with us. May the Lord find us faithful in all of the elements of these verses. For when he does, the eternal rejoicing, rejoicing will be beyond compare. May Christ be glorified in each of these and in each aspect of your lives and in each and every one of you as you live out the truth of Scripture and of our Savior every day of your lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the strong admonition of your word, uh, for our necessary faithfulness. We thank you, Father, for the admonition that we must reach out to the most difficult in this world to seek to save them, to show them mercy as you have shown mercy to us. To seek, Father, to snatch those that are on the brink of the fires of hell. To take those, Lord, whose defilement and sin is rottenness that is evident throughout them and recognize that these two are created in your image and that we would also have mercy with fear on those. You would strengthen us, Lord, to be used in this way, and that as a result, we would have a greater rejoicing, we would have a greater excitement, and Lord, we would be, better, be able to better proclaim your excellencies and mercies, and that we would sing our praises with an eater, even, even stronger and greater voice. And that as a result of all of this, you might receive all of the praise and all of the glory which you alone are due. And we give you thanks for this, asking it in Christ's name. Amen.